Well, good morning. You, uh, if you're not in Acts yet, you should know by now we're going to be in Acts chapter 23 and 24, so if you want to turn your Bibles there, you can. Uh, before we begin, though, I want to uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time, and uh, that in this uh, beautiful passage of Scripture that was read for us, we will be able to see what God is teaching us. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for narratives like this in your word that help us see and understand what you are doing in this world. Thank you for all the things we can learn from Paul's life. Help us now to live in light of what you called us to be, a people set apart for yourself in this generation and this time. Thank you for the way that Paul showed us how to live his life. And as we look then in this passage, may we not be just hearers of the word, but doers as well. In your son's powerful name we pray. Amen. The title of today's passage and the title of today's sermon, uh, that uh, as I was going through it this week, uh, the idea that pastor's been talking to us about, Paul's life was on a mission. And what we're going to see today is the concept of the invincible until complete. And now when I use the term invincible, Uh, The definition that we're using here is the idea of what the word invincible means, too powerful to be defeated or overcome. We have to remember God's plans will never be defeated or overcome until they are complete. There's a theological term that, uh, that I want you to be familiar with, and you'll see it. It's called the decrees of God. So if a God makes a decree, and you go, well, what is the decree of God? The definition of that is the eternal plans of God whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. We see this concept of the decree of God, where before the world began, he predetermined what was going to take place. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, 11. It says this, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So when God has predetermined it to take place, it will take place. That's the theological term we call a decree of God. Human decrees are only as good as the power of the human being has to fulfill it. But when God makes a decree, it will be completed. Now, with, with that in mind, I want to give us a, let's try to put ourselves in a, in a little story here, a little make-believe story that you would be in to help us understand as we enter in this passage what's taking place. So imagine you were told one day that you're going to go on an amazing adventure, and this adventure is going to be up and down valleys, dangerous areas, and it's going to be exciting, but you're going to make it. You won't die along the way. You're going to make it through this adventure. Well, you start your adventure, things are going well. You're moving along pretty cool. There's some, you know, harrowing moments, but, you know, things are moving along pretty exciting, and, you know, you're loving it. And all of a sudden, you get to a minefield. And just like the going on a bear hunt says, you can't go around, it can't go under it, you know, you got to go through it type of deal. And you start going through this minefield. Now, the steps that I would be taking, other than very cautious ones, is I'm crossing this minefield. The first one, I'd be asking myself, can I really trust the person that told me that I was going to make it to the other side? Can I really trust them? Well, guess what? I'm about ready to find out here. And even if I can trust the person, each step along the way that I don't die, my faith in that person is going to get stronger and stronger. When I'm halfway through the minefield, my faith in that person, hey, they actually knew what they were talking about. 
I'm halfway through and I haven't died. But also in the same way though, it would also be foolish of me when I'm halfway through just to take off running and be like, hey, I made it halfway there. Might as well just, you know, go as quick as I can to the other side because that would be foolish. Also it would be foolish of me to step on small unnatural mounds of dirt and just kind of wing it to see if anything's there. It would be wise of me to stay on the compact dirt as I make my path. And what we're going to see, hopefully, in that little adventure story that we were on, we're going to see that passage, in a way, being played out right now. Because last week's passage, things are pretty intense, right? Paul's been in Jerusalem. He's getting beaten. He, in a way, which God had allowed him to do, he plays the Roman citizen card, which was a well-played card to keep him and give him opportunity to speak to people that he would never have been able to speak to, also to stop him from being beaten without a trial. And while this is going on here, in Acts chapter 23, 24, where we ended the passage, 23, sorry, 23, 11, Jesus himself is standing by Paul's bed, and he says, you will testify of me in Rome. To put that into our day and age now, it'd be like the Lord saying, you're going to testify of me in Washington, D.C., all right, then we would call it the big capital of our world. Or even though Washington, D.C. is capital of the United States, you get the concept. Before big, powerful people, you're going to be testifying. God makes a decree here that you're going to testify of me in Rome. But today's passage, as Scott read for us immediately, what do we see? A group of Jews are plotting to kill him. And you can tell they're committed to this because they literally have determined they are not going to eat at all until they kill Paul. All right, so this is not a group of guys that get together and go, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? Oh, let's try to see if we can knock this guy off. No, it is like, we are determined to kill this man. And we have decree of God that's saying, you will testify of me in Rome. Paul's in Jerusalem, he's not in Rome. So he hasn't testified of God in Rome yet. And so now we have a power of will, if you want to call it, playing out here. We have a God who cannot lie, making it a decree to Paul. And we have human beings that are trying to thwart God's plan. That's why our first point in today's passage is invincible. God at work behind the scenes. In a way, Paul has been given a gift here a little bit. The fact that he knows he's going to have to testify about, us in, about God in Rome, right? So he has, in a way, you would call it a little bit of a leg up to the situation because he knows there's one more testifying that needs to take place here. But what we see in this plot to kill him is Paul still understanding he is responsible. Paul still understanding that God uses means that are predetermined to his end that are already in place. To give you an example, here, think of all the unlikely events that take place in this plot that God uses to bring about his ultimate end. So the first thing we see, these men are plotting this, and you see a little boy overhears the plot. And he's no just little boy. Who is this little boy? It's Paul's nephew. And Paul's nephew hears the plot, understands it, and is able to get out of the area where he heard it safely. Then he's able to go visit Paul. And now when he goes and visits Paul, which is even more interesting, remember, so Paul's in custody here. The guards are kind of letting people in to see and take care of his needs, but that doesn't mean they have to let everybody in. The little boy's able to come see Paul. The guards don't go, hey, get away from here, you little kid. You're a nobody. It's a, it's a little kid. This isn't a, an adult that may be able to get in places where 
you know, uh, little kids or not, we see this little kid coming and speaking with Paul. And now it's interesting enough that when Paul hears this, Paul's response is to go, you need to go tell someone who can do something about it. Paul says to the guard, hey, this little boy has something to tell you. The little boy tells the guard. The guard actually believes the little boy. And then the guard takes it to his commander, and the commander believes the story of a little boy who told a guard. So you see a lot of things in play here to where the guard determines that we need to get a group of men here to protect Paul. We also see something that Paul doesn't do. We don't see Paul saying, hey, look, God says, I'm going to Rome. I don't care what these people try to do. I'm invincible and in a cavalier way, not using the people around him to bring protection. Paul realizes that God still works through governmental authority. Paul still works through the world. God still works through the world that we have here. God can take ordinary people and make them do extraordinary things. Even unsaved, ungodly people, Paul is turning their hearts. Proverbs tells us, all the way up to the king. The king's heart is in God's hand, and he turns it wherever he wants. And so what God is doing here is behind the scenes turning people's hearts. Because what do we know that Paul must do? Testify in Rome. God is, in a way, is like a masterful conductor. Multiple things in play, but what is God doing? Working behind the scenes to bring about his ultimate end. Each follower of Christ, each of us, just like Paul here, we testify about God wherever we go, sometimes verbally, sometimes by our mannerisms and how we act. But there will come a day, just like Paul, that we will have one final testimony that we will give. Just like there will be a day that if on my way home today I die, this was my final sermon. You following that? And so there's one more sermon that Tim gives, and then he goes. And since God is the one who has predetermined my days, he knows when that final sermon is. We following this so far? Just like for you, you will have a final day where you will give one last testimony, one last verbal or one last action that you will give, and God will say, you are now complete, come home. Some of us, That may be in our nursing bed as we die, as our care comes in and we share the gospel or we share something that God has taught us one last time. Some of us, that may be for a big group of people that we share. It might be a group of natives in in Alca, a group of Alca Indians in Ecuador before they kill you through, just like Jim Elliott. It might be with your neighbor that you just share something. But each one of us has a testimony. Each one of us has a time of testifying that we will give. And when we let that sink in for a moment, what does that cause us to do? When we allow that to sink into our thinking and our hearts, we start to understand that that truth might change the way we give our last testimony. At least it should, because we never know when that will be, right? And that truth also sinks in. It allows us to have a type of boldness. 
that we are invincible until it is that last time. And so we should not fear this world. We should fear only Him who can kill the body and the soul, which is Christ. It helps us get a better eternal focus. Because the second point here is what we're going to see in this text is Paul understands that he has one final testimony to give, and he knows he must at least testify in Rome. We see a boldness that comes over Paul. We see this in this idea of being invincible that he's going to testify with boldness. But as he's testifying with boldness, he understands that God is at work through governmental authority because he understands this. He has penned these words, and we'll see him as he's written these words later, but we'll, we see that this power that he has, this boldness that he has, does not necessarily come from his own intrinsic, because there are some people that have a little bit more bold characteristics than others. It also doesn't come from an arrogance, as the idea of, I'm Paul, look at you, who are you, I'm a, you know, I'm a somebody, you're a nobody. It doesn't come from that type of boldness. What it comes from is understanding that God is at work in this world, and He is bringing about His ultimate plan. But before we enter into that, I want to get a little bit of an understanding of who this, this Felix guy is that we talk about. Uh, Felix, uh, his, name comes from, his name literally means happy. Uh, he's a Roman official in Judah appointed by the Emperor Claudius in A.D. 53. Uh, he is, when he ruled the providence... Um, his rule is known as he was very mean, he was cruel, he wasted the resources that was given to him. Um, his wife that is mentioned here is his second wife that he basically stole from somebody else. He's found a lady he liked and they basically swapped uh, wives and he stole them from somebody else. And we also see that his period in office was full of troubles and many rebellions. We also see the high priest Ananias and the elders in this as well, as we see a lawyer that's involved. And each one of these individuals play an interesting role as Paul is going to be standing there. As Paul stands before Felix, and we see this here starting in uh, Acts 24, notice what's starting to play out. Knowing what we know about Felix, the lawyer steps in and does a phenomenal job of just as we would call it, blowing smoke at this wonderful guy, how much peace we've had, how wonderful everything is, right? And if it was me standing there like Paul, this would be ticking me off because the Jewish people and the Roman people don't really get along, all right? They are literally, the Romans are oppressing the Jewish people, and this guy is saying how wonderful it's been under Felix's rule. All right, almost in me, we're getting to the point of like, okay, gag, this is like, come on. And as I'm standing here like this, if I was Paul, this is already bothering me. And then notice what Paul's accused of. Paul's accused of literally being a plague. All right? That's not, that's not kind words there. Paul is being accused of someone who stirs up riots. For any of us who've walked through the book of Acts, we know that the riots were stirred up not because of Paul, but because of the people in the town were getting all riled up about Paul's message. They're saying, no, he's the one that's stirring up the riots. And they're like, no? You know, standing here again, be like, no? This isn't the case? And then he's accused of profaning the temple, and Paul's saying, no. And knowing Paul's love for the temple, he's saying, no, this is not something I've done. And then, in a derogatory term, he's accused of being one of those fathers of that Nazarene guy, in a way. 
And now Paul's going to get an opportunity to speak here. In my mind, one of the passages of Scripture that stick out to me is Paul's ready to begin his speaking. Matthew 19, 10. Remember when Jesus is talking to his followers, he says, When you are delivered over, do not be anxious about how to speak or what to say, for what you are, what you are about ready to say will be given to you at that hour. Now, Paul is standing here getting accused. This is, we would call it, character assassination time, right? One thing after another after another that are not even true. And now it's Paul's chance to speak. And what does Paul do? Does he start pointing out, you're a liar. No, look how evil you are. Ananias, don't let me get started on all of your problems. I mean, this lawyer and Felix, I mean, you're not that great either. Does he start that way? No. Because I believe what we get to see here is Paul humbly yet boldly standing for the truth. Because what does Paul start off with in in 24.10? Paul says this, knowing that for many years you've been judge over this nation, I'm happy to make my defense, right? Why does he say that? Because what we see here is Paul understands that Paul's testimony is going before him. Before Paul even explains himself, he understands that his life has created a testimony that is moving before he even speaks. Each one of us has a testimony. Each one of us, as we go into a room, as someone hears your name and they start to get to know you, your testimony goes before you. Now, that can either be a positive thing or it could be a negative thing. But one of the beautiful things are, as long as you are still alive, you can keep working on having your testimony, if it was a negative one, become positive because God is still at work, right? I know I once was, but I now am. And for those of us that at this time that maybe God has given us a gift of having a testimony that does go before us, that is one that is positive, we need to also making sure that we by God's grace, live in a light that is worthy of that testimony. Because Paul's testimony precedes him. And he can even say, look, you can verify these things. And he goes through. He's also understanding and is humble, and yet he's boldly addressing his actions here. Many people believe that Paul, on his way to Jerusalem that we had been studying. You remember when he was over in the Macedonia area and he's coming back to Jerusalem for the festivals? Remember as he's making that pattern, many people believe this is when he writes Romans. And as he's standing before these officials, I'd like for you just to read to you Romans chapter 13, part of it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, the resist authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Interesting how Paul gets an opportunity to literally play out what he just wrote. Because he's standing before people that even as Paul's standing here are corrupt. And now he's putting himself underneath in a way their authority and appealing to them. And as he does this, we see that Paul is living out for us how to address authority. I don't know what God has in store for you, but each one of us lives under authority. 
Each one of us, because we live under authority and that authority is appointed by God, there's going to be some people that we live under that are corrupt. There's going to be some times where we're going to need to stand in front of others and give it and testify to what we have done. But what Paul is giving us here is we do it in a way that is humble. We do it in a way that also carries the boldness because of the truth in the message. But this brings me to my last point here. Paul understood that being invincible, that God had a testify, an opportunity for him to testify in Rome, that being invincible helped him stay focused on the mission. Because he could have been easily distracted by all those accusations, right? He could have been easily distracted and gone down the path and let me prove to you what I'm doing. No, he stayed focused on his mission. Because what Paul's going to get here is an opportunity at the end of chapter 24, is an opportunity to literally sit before Felix and his wife and to talk about God multiple times. And he's going to talk about this. As we see here, these three things in verse 25. He's going to talk about righteousness. He's going to talk about self-control and about the coming judgment. Again, you, sometimes we say these terms, we forget what they mean. Righteousness, again, is being obedient to the moral law of God. So when we say, is that person a righteous person or are they obeying what God has called them to do? Another definition, again, for self-control is the idea of controlling one's desires. And then the coming judgment, again, that's the idea that God is coming again to judge the living and the dead, the just and the unjust. And so Paul speaks about this. Also, look who he's talking to. Two people that, need to li- that are not living their lives in light of any of these things. They're not following the moral law of God. They're not showing any self-control, and they're not living in light of the coming judgment. And so this is what he points out to them over and over again, enough to the point that Felix's response, he's alarmed, and he says, go away, and then, but yet I still want to hear a little bit more of this. So we have this, like, get out of here, but I still know what you're saying is right, but I don't really know if I want to change my actions at the moment. And so we see Paul here staying focused on his mission. Because notice when Paul is talking, he's not trying to get himself off the hook. Because I'm sure there's a lot of things he could have talked to Felix and his wife about when he had the quiet time, just the two of them, three of them talking, that he could have said, you know, listen, let me tell you, these people have been out to get me from the beginning. You know, they're really wrong. Why don't you let me go? Because why does he keep meeting with Felix? And we see this is because Felix was hoping he'd get a bribe from Paul. He's hoping he would get paid off so Paul could be released. And so what Paul we see here is Paul goes in, he meets with Felix. There's no bribe that's given. Paul goes back to custody. Two months pass. Three months pass. Four, and we'll speed up a little bit. A year passes. And now we're into two years, and Paul is sitting in custody. Now, let's take this passage here. Things are moving pretty fast for Paul, right? We get this, you're going to testify to me in Rome, Paul's kind of going, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. A plot to kill Paul, right? That plot to kill Paul gets him before Felix. Okay, he's moving up in the world, thinking things are going along well. And all of a sudden, it's like the brakes go screeching onto a halt. And Paul's in prison for two, in custody for two years. Think about that for a minute. If you were to list 
a group of people that were incredibly influential, influential for Christianity, and you were to put the top 10 people who have influenced the world, Paul would be up there. And you ask yourself, all right, remember, we, remember we went back to the decrees of God, his plans will not be thwarted, we are invincible, will not be able to be defeated, and yet it looks as if Paul is sitting in custody for two years. Really? Part of me wants to say to the Lord, um, he could have been out sharing the gospel with a whole lot of other people, a bigger audience, right? What can we learn from this? Well, think about this. If you're Paul, let's put ourselves in Paul's place for the moment. All right, I've been called to preach the word to the Gentiles, and now I'm sitting in custody. And only the people that come to see me are those who are hanging out. I'm next to some guards. Hey, they're Gentiles. I should probably be testifying to the gospel to them. Uh, we see this if you read in Philippians where Paul does share the gospel with the guards. But for two years, he sits there. Knowing he's going to testify in Rome, but yet we sit for two years. And not much is happening. We don't know, is he tempted to, you know, hey, a bribe may, may you know, like, do I do this? Do we not? To get, to get our guy out, do we, what do we do in those situations? We're not told. But we're told that there's a pause, a two-year pause. So what was God's mission for Paul while he was sitting in custody? Now let's bring this even down further. Let's say you're a mother with little kids. You wake up in the morning, probably earlier than what you thought because someone comes running into your room. You make breakfast. You clean up after breakfast. You wipe the snotty noses. You change their diapers. You try to clean up the house, and as you're cleaning up the house, it's a disaster behind you, so you turn around again and try to clean it up again. You have lunch. You finally get through lunch, and there's a nap time somewhere thrown in there that they may or they may not be sleeping. You change more diapers. It's survival until your spouse comes home. And you finally, your spouse comes home and they go, what'd you do today? And most mothers go, I don't know. I don't know if I did anything because the house looks the same as when you left. There's more stinky stuff in the trash can. And I don't know what my mission is. Did I actually do anything of any eternal value today? All right, let's, but another way, you have a job. You wake up in the morning, you go to your job. You work hard at your job so you can get to your first break, and then you go back to your next part of your job, you get lunch, you work at your job, you come home and you're tired, you eat something, you fall asleep, and you wake up and you do it again and again and again. Well, what was your mission? Let's say you're a student. You get up in the morning to go do, go off to school to get more homework to come home to do, to do more homework, to go to sleep, to wake up, to go do it again. So what's your mission? Because if we're not careful, we miss out on some things. Because here's another person might be their mission. So you don't get out much because you're, you're either sick or you're just getting old. 
And this literally may be the highlight of your week and you come here and you're too tired when you get home to do anything because this was an exhaustive amount of energy to get here. So what's your mission? Because if we're not careful, we can get to the point that we think that the only people that are on mission for God are those who stand up and are pastors. And the rest of us are just running around doing whatever we're supposed to be doing and the only guys who are actually doing anything spiritually significant in this world are the pastors. And we forget, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we ask ourselves, so what is my mission? How do we answer that for a mother? How do we answer that for a worker? How do we answer that for a child? How do we answer for that to someone who literally goes, my mission may be that literally I roll over today. How does that play out? What is my mission right now? Your mission right now is this, to be faithful. To live righteously. To practice self-control. And to live your light in light of the coming judgment. So how do I wipe those noses faithfully? In a way that brings glory to God. How do I change those diapers faithfully? How do I work my homework faithfully to the honor and glory of God? Because here's what we see. Notice this real quick. Paul is not in control, if we want to call it of his life, anymore. What we're going to see is Paul's going to be pushed around wherever he goes by the Roman authority. You're going to go from here. You're going to go from here. You're going to go from here. You're going to sit in custody for two years. You're going to go from here. And Paul doesn't have the ability to go, hey, I think we should go over here. I think we should go over there. He is a man that now does not have the power, if we want to call it the freedom, to make his decisions. But what do we see Paul doing? Wherever God has placed him through the Roman governmental authorities, he is testifying of the gospel of God. There's a lot of things that come into our lives that we don't necessarily have control over. Are we being faithful to those tasks? And as we're faithful to those tasks to bring glory and honor to God, we are faithful to the next task that He will call us to. Because there will come a day where that last missional thing that God has called you to do will be done. But until that day comes, you are invincible. Until God says, you're done. So we're to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Because as we're faithful to that one step, then the next step, what he's called us to faithfully do. Or another way of putting it here is this. What has God called you on your mission? Because when we close here shortly, you will stand up and you'll walk to the door. What has God called you to do on your mission as you walk to the door? What about when you get in the car and you go home? You enter your home. What has God called you to do? To bring honor and glory to His name. So how do you do that? You do that by being faithful to what He's called you to do. One step at a time. And that's where, when you look back by God's grace of your life, and he will see how he directed you on his mission, on his path.
But many times we like to, like, I want to see what the end is. And he goes, no, you faithfully follow me and live in obedience. Along the way, God will be the one that will be protecting and guiding you. And that protection, I want to be clear, like Paul, many times got him beat up, but he was still protected because he had one final testimony to give, and that was in Rome. Then after that, God calls him home. So the so what, what is your mission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe that you have chosen to use vessels like us. May we see with open eyes what you are calling us to do. May we be faithful to the things you've called us to do. Whether it's a homework assignment, whether it's a task at work that we were given, whether it's an opportunity to testify of you. Because as we do our homework assignments and as we do our jobs at work, we are testifying that we are doing it not for the glory of men, but for the glory of you. Give us the strength we need to live each day faithfully. In your son's name we pray, amen. If you could please stand for the benediction. It's found in Jude, chapter 1, 24, since there's only one chapter. It says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all, t- all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed.